0: okay i um I'm now going to read the resolutions that uh i wanted i started to read this morning uh these resolutions were passed there was a committee called the Subjects Committee, which was entrusted with the work of writing these resolutions and um and getting them into the wording that they have. And I know about that committee because I was on it. There were, um, yeah, there were 12 of us plus Master Kapal, who I don't recall that he was actually present in the room when we were working on it. But uh, we knew what he wanted and what his wishes were, and uh, it was a question of how we worded them, the best way to get across what he wanted to get across. Pierre Velayat was also on that committee and I actually uh, enjoyed extremely much working with him. He was a very humble guy and of all these so-called spiritual leaders that I met, that I did meet in India and other places, um, I have to say that I was more impressed with him than with um, almost anyone else apart from obviously Masters Kapal and Ajay. All right. So these are the resolutions. We were working. We worked on the afternoon of February fifth, the next to last day of the conference. Resolution number one: The World Conference on Unity of Man noted with gratification the tremendous response of the common man in all parts of the world to the call for unity. Recognizing the demand for peace and unity, the conference concluded that today there is dire and urgent need to promote in thought, word, and deed the eternal values of love, nonviolence, truth, tolerance, and selfless service of humanity in the hearts of men. The conference looks for guidance to holy men to help free mankind from fear and ignorance and transform modern man into a whole man who is at peace with himself and with those around him. The conference concluded that all religions are in essence one and that their main purpose is to lead mankind on the path of love and selfless service. Resolution number two. Whereas the World Conference on Unity of Man, convened by Sant Kripal Singh Maharaji in February 1974, composed of representative religious and political leaders of India and abroad, demonstrated the overwhelming public appeal for world unity the need was felt to devise practical means of implementing this wish, which the conference believes is one felt throughout the masses of mankind in our time. It was resolved, one, that the World Conference on Unity of Man should awaken public opinion to the need for one world consciousness. Two, that the World Conference on Unity of Man expressed the wish to apply to the United Nations and UNESCO for accreditation as an official agency at a future stage. Three, that the World Conference on Unity of Man should establish connections with all organizations having kindred aims throughout the world for the purpose of achieving a better coordination of activities. Four, that the World Conference on Unity of Man should delegate regional and national representatives in various countries to organize similar meetings with a view to shedding light upon the common denominator between all faiths. Five, that such representatives as aforesaid should request elected representatives to appeal in their respective legislatures for the promotion of an unbiased study of comparative religion in school and adult education. Six, at the World Conference on Unity of Man, should invite religious leaders and teachers of meditation to compare their methods and encourage mass encounters, including the disciples of several leaders. Resolution number three. The World Conference on Unity of Man resolved that UNESCO be addressed to encourage among world youth fuller understanding of the common ethical roots of all faiths through organized nationwide study of each other's religions and to appreciate their contributions to the prevailing moral basis of mankind, and secondly, to encourage the same through the audio-visual systems of mass media available commonly to people. Resolution number four. The World Conference on Unity of Man records its firm conviction that mankind as part of the universe is essentially one, and that the well-being or ill-being of one individual affects all humanity. The conference records its conviction that spiritual awakening with love as its basis is the foundation of the unity of man. Signed. And these are the signers. Kripal Singh, Peer Vilayat Dinayat Khan, A. J. Srivastava, Reno H. Serene, D. P. Pandi, Russell Perkins, B. Shamsuka, Surin Goyal, V. Dharambara, Shankar Dave, Member of Parliament, Darshan Singh Dugal, H. L. Sharma, Michael Grayson. And then the next day, Master concluded the conference with these remarks, very brief remarks, but in them he um, requested us to ratify the resolutions. He, sp- he spoke in Hindi for a while, and that was never translated, so I don't know exactly what he said, but, and he may have well um, basically said the same thing that he concluded in English. So, dear brothers and sisters who have come from abroad, I submit that in these four days we have been very productive. All of us have laid our heads together and come to some conclusions. After all, what are these conflicts and schisms going on in each country? The fact is that unity already exists. We have forgotten it. What is that unity? the right understanding that all men are born in the same way, with the same privileges from God and the same construction outside and inside. As man, we are all one, no high, no low. We were first man. Then the tongue became Christian or Hindu or Mohammedan or this or that thing by wearing all those labels. But that is not all. Further, we are one at the level of that conscious entity which is administering this factory of the human body. So we are conscious beings, and God is all conscious. Some power is controlling us in the body, which works as long as we are in it. We live in this world only for a certain time, until that power which is controlling us leaves. That power is God into expression and is called word, nam, shabad, kalma. So that God power whom we have to find and he who has to do the finding both live in the temple of the human body. But our attention, which is the outward expression of our soul, is identified with the world outside so much so that we have forgotten ourselves. So we have to just know ourselves by withdrawing our attention from all outside and from the body below. When we know ourselves, we are able to know the over-self who is controlling us in the human body. So please... There is no need of changing your religions or social bodies, but it is most necessary that you follow the teachings of those religions, that's all. And those are, God resides in every heart. All is holy where devotion kneels. And he resides in every heart, whether the labels are this way or that way. So, for this purpose, we come to some resolutions. I hope all these were repeated to you, read by my brother or friend. I take it that they appeal to you. If so, I think each one of you can raise some finger in assent. Raise your hand up if you all agree. And there is a parenthetical remark that every hand went up from the assembled delegates. It is for your good and the good of all humanity. So I thank you for your coming from far off and taking so much trouble. You have taken time from your busy hours, also spent so much money. Those who have come from India, we are thankful. But those who have come from abroad and spent thousands of dollars, they deserve more thankfulness. So I convey my thanks to each one of you, whether you have gathered here from here or from abroad. Today is the last day of these sessions. I hope you will carry this very thing practically in your lives. God bless you all. And that concluded the Unity of Man conference. Now, I want to read a couple of brief paragraphs from Sanchi's writings. Because which uh, also go to express the same thought. Because it is so easy to pay lip service, and the Master goes into this over and over in the course of the readings that we've had, it is so easy to pay lip service to these ideas and forget it when the crunch is on. All right. Sanchi, this is from the book In the Palace of Love. This is a famous story told by Sanchi on a number of occasions and told by Master Kripal also on a number of occasions, a number of which I was, I've been present a number of times when they both told this story. So he says, Guru Nanak says, God Almighty has written in our fate whether we will understand this or not. In whatever way we see the world, God Almighty also looks at us. There was an old woman who worshipped idols. With all her love and devotion, she would burn incense and perform the ritual. One day a thought came to her. Today I will not eat any food until God accepts some part of it. So she sat there with this determination in her mind. She had some milk in a golden cup and some other food also, and she offered them to the idol and sat there waiting for God to accept some part of it. Now, God Almighty thought, look at the determination of this woman. You know that idols cannot speak or eat, so how was that idol going to accept any food? But God Almighty was pleased with her devotion. So he came in the form of a very old crippled man, knocked at her door, and asked her to give him some food. He said, I am in difficulty. I need clothes and food. Why don't you give me something? She replied, I don't have any food. Whatever food I had, I put it in front of this god, and I cannot give you anything unless he accepts part of it. So he went away. Again, God Almighty came in the form of a poor old man, poorer than the other one. And he said, I have pain in my stomach. If you would make me some tea, the pain would go away and I'll be very grateful to you. She said, I don't have any milk to make tea. I only have the milk which I have placed before God. And unless he accepts part of it, I cannot do anything with it and I cannot make tea. So he also went away. Now just imagine... If that woman had known that God Almighty resides in every being, in every creature, she would not have refused both those old men who in fact were God Almighty. She would have given them food and tea. But she did not know that God Almighty resides in every being. She did not have that understanding. That is why she did not oblige. She did not give food to the living God because she was waiting for the idol to accept it. And I think that an awful lot of what we do in this lifetime is summed up in that last sentence. We don't give food to the living God because we're waiting for the idol to accept it. One way or another. One kind of thing or another. And... um, The hard part is, of course, that here is where nonviolence and universal love and all of the things, truthfulness, chastity, and selfless service also, the things on the diary form, they come running into trouble because a lot of times it's not pleasant for us to think in those terms and to do them. We don't want to face up to the suffering of the poor old man at the door because we have our own ideas of how we're going to relieve it. And that's the way of it. That's the way it works. And Master knows that, which is why he does the teaching that he gives. Because the world now, and... I, This is no joke. The world now is at a place that is so bad that you could say the whole world refuses to give food to the living God because it's waiting for the idol to accept it. When we talk about idols, you know, when we make a God in our own image, when we assume that God hates people, when we assume that God uh, wants revenge on people, when we assume that God exists to fulfill all our desires and uh, refuse to fulfill anyone else's, when we call that kind of thinking religion, then we are doing exactly what the old woman did. Now, God had respect for her devotion, and uh, it's because he had respect, even though she was doing something that many religions would condemn out of hand that is, worshipping an idol, God still had respect for that. Because he had respect for her devotion, he came to see her. But she wasn't able to recognize him. And that is where, I mean, we we don't start off meaning badly. We see things the way we see them and we do our very best. But it often happens that... um, We go only so far and then we're hung up in our own creations. And basically, idolatry, idol worship, doesn't have that much to do with actual image worship. It has to do with the idols that we create when we make God in our own image. And uh, people do that all the time. And they do it in the most exalted religions because that's how they see it. And I think that the path is, when, and we, we can do it within the context of the path, although it's harder, because mastery is so specific. But then Jesus was also very specific about exactly the same things. And people who follow him, as with Muhammad also, have no problem ignoring the fact that he put emphasis on that. And so can we as satsangis ignore where Master put his emphasis. This uh, is a famous story that uh, I know that you all know, and I, I'm just going to read a brief version of it from the book The Rescue, The of by Gurdas, in which Sanchi talks about King Janak. Now, King Janak, if you read the Upanishads or the Ramayana, you mm-hmm. run across King Janak everywhere. He was a very famous king, uh, famous both as a king and as a master, a spiritual master. And the masters tell many stories about him. He lived, according to traditional Hindu chronology, he lived very long time ago, in the Silver Age, the Second Age, which goes back hundreds of thousands of years. But he is still remembered. Sanchi says King Janak was a very reputable king in India. Along with his being a king and doing his work as a king, he was also a great meditator, a perfect saint. Even great rishis like the sons of Vedvyas had gone to him and had taken him as their master. He attended to all his responsibilities as a king, but at the same time he also did his devotion. And he is used as an image in Ramakrishna's comments. For example, he surfaces as an image of someone who can be a householder and who can also uh, achieve the highest. And of course in traditions which um, minimize the concept of being a householder and glorify being a renunciate, uh, of which a number of religions do that, then this is more of a major thing. In the tradition of the masters, of course, there is no problem with being a householder. Uh, many were familiar, I'm sure, with Sanchi's story about Sukdev Muni, the son of Vidvias, whom he mentions here, being told he had to take King Janak as his master because he was the highest master available and Sukhdev was a renunciate, and he considered that a, a householder, even a king, was a very unworthy guru for someone like him. So Sanji says, Earlier I have told how King Janak did his meditation. Many masters have said a lot about the way he became perfect in his meditation. At his end time, when he left this world the Lord of Judgment himself came down to take him as Dharma personified, not to take him to himself. This was a courtesy given to a great master by the Lord of the Three Worlds who was doing him the honor of escorting him through the Three Worlds on his way to Satchkhand. And as he was being taken by the Lord of Judgment to the higher planes, On the way he heard screams and cries. So King Janak asked the Lord of Judgment, what is all the screaming and crying that's going on? The Lord of Judgment replied, those are the screams and cries of those souls who, when given the human birth, did not utilize it for the purpose for which it was given to them. They did all kinds of bad deeds. Now they are being punished in the hells. They are screaming and crying because they are getting punishment from the angels of death. Now you know that those who do the devotion of Nam become very compassionate and have a lot of mercy and grace for others. Whenever they hear the cries or screams of the people, their hearts melt. So King Janak's heart melted and he felt very compassionate towards them. He said, why don't you release them all from the punishment of hell? The Lord of Judgment replied, I am a child of the indestructible being, Almighty God, and I am under orders only to do judgment. It is not in my capacity to release them. I have to give them punishment for the bad deeds they have done. I cannot release them on my own. So then King Janak offered, Well, whatever you want me to pay for them, I am ready to pay. But you should release them, because I don't want them to go through all that punishment. So King Janak offered his meditations. He placed on one side of the balance a little bit of the nam that he had meditated on, and on the other side of the balance he placed all the souls, all the souls who were in hell. But still the side of the balance where the nam was placed was heavier So it is said that just by giving a little bit of the fruit of the meditation of King Janak, he was able to release all the souls from hell. Those who do the devotion of Nam get so much power and so much grace that even if just one person does the meditation of Nam, he can release millions of screaming and suffering souls from hell. Master Kripal used to say, what a man has done, a man can do. It is not that only King Janak could do the meditation and we cannot do it. He used to say that we have also been given the same Nam. we have been connected with the same Nam, and we also can do the meditation of Nam just as King Janak did. Kabir Sahib also said, if we can maintain the devotion all our life, which we had for the Master on the day we met him, if we go on doing our devotion like that, then what is the question of getting our own liberation? We can liberate a million others as well. Because you know that when we go to the Master on the first day, we have a lot of devotion and faith in him. So if, after receiving initiation, we can maintain that faith and devotion and go on doing the meditation as instructed by the Master... We can not only liberate our own selves, but we can also become a means of the liberation of millions of other suffering souls. And I would point out, this is an absolutely extraordinary story, which it's been around, I mean, other masters have told it also. It's a famous story, but its familiarity should not hide from us the fact of its extraordinariness because um, this is the way in which love overwhelms law. Sal and Singh had a famous favorite statement, where there is love, there is no law. And esoterically speaking, and we can understand statements like that on a lot of different levels, esoterically speaking, refers to the fact of, you know, that the three worlds... The worlds of Kal, the negative power, the worlds where karma controls are worlds that are balanced or functional by judgment, by uh, punishment and reward, by what we call fairness, except that it doesn't always seem fair because it involves so many lifetimes other than the one that we happen to be in that um, we can't always see how fair it is. But there it is. It's there. And that is the world we're stuck in. The Master comes from a world where that does not happen. He comes from the world where what counts is forgiveness, mercy, grace, compassion, and love. And those trump everything else. So when he introduces that into the three worlds, it has the effect of nullifying or cancelling out the karma. And it can be done because the Master comes to do that. Sanchi has said that the Master comes down only to love. That's his function. He comes to love, he gives us love, he accepts our love from us and makes use of it to take us back home. When we love Him, we are giving Him, we are making it easier for Him to do His work. Because every time we love or forgive or have compassion, do not judge, and let live and let live, as Master Kripal used to say, every time we do that, we are opening up channels for the Master to work, and not only our own liberation becomes. Easier, but so does the liberation of others. Taken to its fullest extreme, we can empty hell. And why wouldn't someone who loves us and who knows how hard it is, why wouldn't he want to empty hell? You know, there's a Sufi master who said, Oh God, you put us on a shingle in the middle of the ocean and commanded us not to get wet. That is a very accurate rendition of how the law of karma works. It's very, very difficult. William Blake, who wrote a great deal about this kind of thing, said somewhere, he gave us a law so complicated that nobody can follow it. And there is something to that. You know, it is not possible to avoid making the kinds of mistakes that lead to bad karma. The whole point of the diary, of course, of the practice of self-introspection, or what is called mindfulness, is to undercut that from coming from another direction. But it is also primarily undercut by means of love. So taken to an extreme, we can empty hell, and we can also uh, liberate millions of people backwards and forwards in time because when we love truly we are functioning on the level of such Khand which is outside of time and beyond time and is in fact eternity. And as William Blake again said eternity is ever in love with the products of time. A statement that Master Kripal quoted by the way, one of his books. So it's of utmost importance this is, the unity of man is based on this. We are all human beings. We are all stuck. We, we have, on the positive side, we have all those privileges that Master mentions, all our functional senses, our eyes, ears, etc. Um, we can fall in love on a, in a worldly way. We have all sorts of things we can do. On the negative side, we are all one in that we all make continually mistakes that we get in our own way, that we do things that we wish we hadn't after we've done them, that we do things doing of which can ruin our life, and I've seen that happen many times. Sanchi has pointed that out, that the failings on the diary, if we don't pay attention to them, they can ruin our lives. All that is true. But what is truer is what is said in the beginning of the first chapter of the Gospel of John, that the light shineth in the darkness, and the darkness, the word used is comprehended in the King James Version, but the Greek word actually better refers to overwhelming it, that the darkness can't overwhelm the light. There's a lot of darkness in the three worlds but there's a lot more light in Sajkhand and the light comes down as an act of mercy not as an act of deserving it is not a reward or punishment for anything it is an act of mercy from the Lord of mercy and when we are Kapal Dindayal Satguru Dindayal um, have mercy on the poor And we are the poor. There is no doubt about it. You know, we are poor because we cannot control our destiny. We are subject to the vicissitudes and the whims of our own actions, the results of what we have done. And we are bound by them. All we have control over is the way in which we take them. We can control our reactions. There we have freedom and that is the way in which the bhakti yoga, the yoga of love and devotion, that's the way that works. Because if we respond to the results of our own actions with love and devotion from the point of view or the level of the world within, the real world, then we are getting somewhere. I want to conclude by reading a brief section from a talk given by a good friend of mine, known to many of you, Fletcher Loki, who was also at the Unity of Man conference. And when he got back, he stayed a long time after he was doing seva at the ashram. Uh, Master had him stay, because Fletcher is, some of you know, a superb sevadar, absolutely superb. Anyway... He came back in June. Uh, the conference was in February. And he gave a talk at Saint Bani Ashram when he came back, which uh, I'm going to read a couple of paragraphs from. And this explains, Fletcher understood a very great deal when he got back, and this explains a lot about how to do it. How do we realize, how do we get to the place where we not only care about the unity of man, when we recognize that the living God is moving among us, but how do we get where we can remember that even when everything is pulling against it? And remember that even when things are piling up on us, causing us stress, causing us anxiety, making us afraid. Kakasab Kalelkar pointed out that love is fearless. A lot of people have pointed that out. So Fletcher says, Master said something one day that struck me, and as I was keeping a little journal, I entered it that evening when I was writing out my thoughts. He said, there are two worlds. There is one above the eyes, and there is one below the eyes. And that night he said, if you will go above, this world will disappear. And I nodded. I said, yes, yes, and I put it in my journal because it sounded like an important thing to hear and an important thing to remember. All these things that we keep, all the little incidents, all the little cosmic things that Master says, we note down in our memories and we jot down in our notebooks, and they stay in our memories and in our notebooks. But any time that you have even a tiny little practical experience of those things of which Master speaks, then you remember that you have heard them millions of times before, And you just shake your head and wonder how you never heard. You never heard because you just never had practical experience of it. That's all. And that same understanding was then brought back to what Master has said so often, that meditation is the answer to all these problems. And it had just never occurred to me that what he meant was, it will not answer your questions, it won't solve your problems, it won't pay the mortgage... But what it does is to put those problems in their proper perspective. Those questions are questions at their own level. If you see even a smidgen higher than that level, the problems don't go there. The things that we go through in physical life are not useless and purposeless. If they were, we wouldn't be going through them. But they belong in one place. And if even for a moment you can be disentangled from them, then for that moment they vanish. Then when you see them again, you say, Ha ha, problem, I saw you vanish. I know you're not real. For as long as we see clearly, it's so clear. And when we remember that clarity, we can have the benefit of it. If we forget, then we simply work again from that level, and again the problems are real, And again, they cause pain, they cause worry, they make us unhappy. All the happiness that I found while I was there and all the happiness that I have brought back all stems from one thing. Having had a little bit of experience of doing what Master has been trying to tell us to do all the time. When you are in His will, when you are following instructions, you are happy every minute. When you are not, you are not always happy. Nevertheless, it's an easy thing to forget. And unless you hang on to it every minute, you can slip back and the mind goes downstream by its very nature. And there's, that, that article is published in the June uh, 1974 Satsandesh, if anyone wants to look it up. It's an excellent article in its entirety. One of the best ever, in my opinion. Anyway, that is the point. The thing before us, what Master does by his existence, is to open up the three worlds, the worlds of karma, the worlds of the negative power, to the influence of the real world, Satchkand, or what we call eternity. By doing that, he makes it possible. It's like, it's really almost a science fictional concept. I don't know if any of you have seen the movie Thor, which I kind of like. And I uh, in, actually, in, I enjoy it very much. And um, the concept of the way in which Asgard relates to Midgard or the Earth is very similar to the way the Masters... I mean, it's one way of thinking about it, okay? Uh, the way the Masters come from Sachkhand down into the Triloki, the three worlds. It's, you know, a divine invasion. The writer Philip K. Dick, who's somebody I admire very much, wrote a book of that title, um, The Divine Invasion, and he was talking about something very like this, speaking of science fiction. He had—he definitely had a it's part of a trilogy, and the trilogy had as its basic concept the influence or the efforts made by higher beings to influence us so that we can escape from the world of suffering that we live in. Anyway, that's what the Master does. He does it by loving. He does it by forgiving. He does it by not ordering people around. The The real Master does not make himself a dictator. And I have observed this many times with Kripal and with Sanchi that they were... I, I mean, I, I've argued with them both, you know, and they... They were always very, "Oh, okay, whatever you think, you know it's up to you, you can yeah, and then I would think about it, I said, "What on earth am I doing?" Yeah. And I would go back i I did that with writing the article that I mentioned last night at the conference, and there were other things at the same time. Master had told me, "How long are you staying?" and i said oh i'm leaving uh, I'm leaving in such and such a day." I've forget now exactly which. And he said, well, I I think you should stay longer. I said, well, I I can't, Master. I've got to get back. I've got all kinds of important stuff to do. I didn't quite say that, but that was, I'm a busy guy. I I can't hang around here. And uh, Master said, well, it would be good if you could stay three days longer. And I said, no, 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 Master, impossible. I can't do it. And that night, and then during that day, I got so angry at somebody, I just, I got, I lost my temper and I really told him off, which I can do. That's one of my main flaws, although I have quite a few others also, but that one is a big one. And uh, that night I couldn't sleep, and all night long I sat in meditation and I, all the day was reliving itself in my mind and I saw very clearly everything that i had done so that morning i went downtown and changed my ticket which you could do in those days fairly easily for three days more and i came back and told the master i had done that and that i would write the article here but in both cases he said no it's up to you you know you you can you can do that you can go to your own destruction doesn't it's fine (laughs) and that's the way the master works uh, it's, sometimes people, you know, when, when when disciples act like idiots, which happens more often than you might think, other disciples often want the Master to really come down hard on them. Bammo. And he doesn't want to do that because he doesn't function that way. One of the tours at Bani Sanchi was there, a guy came up to me and said, um, you know, he said, my wife is an initiate and I'm not. And I came very reluctantly because I have a hard time with the idea of spiritual teachers or gurus dominating other people and this and that. But he said, I've watched your man in action now for a number of days, and I see very clearly that he's only a leader in the Taoist sense, that he's there and what comes from him is very high and very good, but he doesn't impose it on anybody. He does not issue a lot of orders. He does not push people around or tell them to do this or that. It comes from him in a very natural, very spiritual way. And that's the way a master works. Taoism is, of course, the teachings of Lao Tzu and in the Tao Te Ching uh, is an expression of the path, as Master Kripal has pointed out many times. And there is a reason why the guy saw it that way. So that's the way the Master works. That is the way that uh, such Khand functions in relation to the three worlds. The three worlds is the place where, you know, violence counts and where you push people around to get what you want, where nice guys finish last and all that stuff. And that's how the three worlds function. But when the three worlds are pried open by the ray of love, that comes from Sach Khan, then everything is different. And the real God is like that. In the Bible, it tells of the prophet Elijah. He was very badly uh, in bad shape and he made it to Mount Sinai where Moses, of course, had seen God and wanted very much to be in contact with God, and he was. And it said in the Bible that he saw there was an earthquake, there was a, a huge thunderstorm, there were all kinds of things, but God wasn't in any of them. It lists each one individually. There came a big, an earthquake, but God wasn't in the earthquake. There came a thunderstorm, but God wasn't in the storm. So on and so forth. Finally, it says in the King James Version, there was a still, small voice. And in some versions, it says a soft murmuring sound, something like that. I like the still, small voice myself, but... There are various ways of translating the Hebrew. And Elijah knew that that was God. And that's the way of that. The masters come and they reflect that. They are the still small voice. They don't push us around. People get that impression, but they don't know how the real masters work. It's just not done like that. So, we're winding down to the end of another long talk. And I guess I have said what I want to say tonight, so I guess I'll be quiet.